A few verses earlier in this book of the Bible, James, James has said we're to count it joy when we face trials. That's weird. Somehow we're supposed to find peace in the midst of trouble. But it isn't so weird because how many of you, uh, if you looked at, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior, and if you aren't, well, for Pete's sake, don't leave here without talking to somebody about how to know Jesus but uh, if you know Christ as your Savior, uh, then I'll ask you a question. Uh, when was it that you grew the most as a Christian? Was it when times were easy or was it when times were tough? It's, it's when times are tough. That's when we grow. And fortunately, by the grace of God, He brings us out of those times. But that's where we, we grow. Why? It's because when times are difficult, that's when we dig ourselves deeper into God. My spiritual father used to say to me whenever I, I matter of fact, I picked him up at Toronto Airport once, and he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm kind of discouraged. And he said, well, what lie of the enemy have you believed? And I thought, thank you very much for that positive word of encouragement. <laughs> but he always used to say to me, David, dig your, with a smile on his face, dig yourself deeper into God. And I thought my hole just about reached Australia, you know, <laughs> sometimes. But I always found God when I dug the hole because that's where God comes and he actually brings healing into your life. Divine surgery, you, you could call it. The grace of God comes to us as we call upon him in our distress. Now, the name of this church is grace. That's a wonderful word. But let me tell you something. Grace is not a concept. I mean, it is a theological truth or teaching. That's true. But it's far more than that. Grace is the power of God. Grace is the power of God released by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that finds you, digs you out of your hole, and changes you. That's what grace is. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. Count it all joy. There's a difference between being happy and being blessed. Most people spend a lot of their life seeking happiness, and happiness is rarely found by people who make it their foremost goal. Why? Well, for one reason, uh, happiness, happiness is dependent entirely on positive external circumstances. Now, there's always good things happening in, in our lives, but they tend to get easily overwhelmed by the negative. How many of you have had a day that started out really great? Then there was one negative email, one negative text, one phone call, one word that somebody spoke to you, it ruined the whole thing. Man, I've had phone calls that wrecked me for a week. And you lose sight of the positives. The negatives seem to just come in and overwhelm. And so that's where the experience of suffering starts. In that one nasty phone call, that one insensitive comment, that one inconsiderate action, that one wrong accusation, that one lousy thing that happened at work or at home or with a friend. But there's an alternative to pursuing happiness. Happiness is really focused on our own personal pleasure and contentment. But instead of pursuing happiness, here's a better idea. Why don't you seek joy instead? Why don't you seek the joy that comes from serving the Lord? See, happiness depends on things working, uh, things around us working out. But joy depends only on one thing. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord Jesus in your life. 
That's why you can find joy even in the middle of rough circumstances. And uh, I've got bad news in one sense. God is not committed to your happiness. (laughs) This is not a seeker-sensitive church. (laughs) It isn't now, anyway. (laughs) God is not committed to your happiness. Some Christians think God's committed to my happiness. Well, He isn't. But He does promise you joy. God's not committed to making your life all nice so that you won't need Him anymore. God is committed, though, to give you joy. The reason we're blessed, even in adversity and challenge and trial and suffering, is because we found joy. The Apostle Paul made this statement in the middle of a very difficult circumstance in his life. He says, in all my affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. That wasn't because he was psychologically deluded or masochist or something like that. It's just he knew how to find the joy of the Lord, even in the worst circumstances. David, King David in the Old Testament, and he wrote a bunch of the Psalms, he said, he said this, and this is in Psalm 30, he said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But what happened? See, he was finding his focus in happiness and pleasure. In my prosperity, I said, I'll never be moved. So, God throws a wrench into the works. The psalm continues. David addresses God. You hid your face. I was dismayed. See, uh, we, we think that, that everything is going to be hunky-dory in our life. There's never going to be a problem. And then when there is a problem, we say, we blame God and we say, I'm disillusioned. Well, you can only be disillusioned because you believed an illusion to begin with. Let me throw it back at you. And so I'm taking that illusion away. God isn't committed to making everything hunky-dory in your life. He is committed to helping you, to growing you, to enabling you to find joy, to fixing your problems so that you, in the long run, will be a whole healthy person. And in the end, you'll live with Him forever. That's good enough. That's not an illusion. You'll never be disillusioned with God if you understand that. Never. I guarantee it. You may go through tough times. You will go through tough times. You'll also go through great times. I'm just emphasizing the tough times because that's what he asked me to preach on this morning. (laughs) Well, blame him, not me. (laughs) Anyway, back to David. God, God threw a wrench into the works. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Things began to go wrong. But David decided on a good response. See, we cannot control the things that happen to us in life, but we can control our responses. And in my experience of 40-odd years of pastoral ministry, uh, it's not so much the bad things that happen to people, it's how they respond that determines the outcome. And, of course, we need the grace of God to respond. You can't just go around telling people, well, do respond this way, respond that way. This is where the grace of God comes into it. We can't do anything without the grace of God whatsoever. We certainly can't get right with God uh, outside of His grace. We can't even live for Christ outside of His grace. Some Christians think, I can be saved by grace, but I live by works. Well, I won't work because I need the grace of God every day to make any kind of right response to God. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. I don't know. Anyway, so David casts himself on the mercy of God. He says, oh, Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you've healed me. And so he finds something very precious because he keeps on writing, 
Weeping may last for the night. He'd been through that, but joy comes with the morning. There's that joy again that I was talking about. Joy comes with the morning. And by the time he finishes the psalm, he's saying, You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When you find the joy of the Lord, it'll do you good. Nehemiah was another guy in Old Testament days. He had the task of building a wall around Jerusalem, building it up when it had been wrecked by enemy incursions and attack and so on, and he was sent back to restore uh, with the task of restoring the wall and rebuilding the city, and he faced a lot of discouragement, uh, not the least of which was treachery from within. There are few things in life that are more painful than betrayal, and uh, I think most of us know that. But when the wall was finished, uh, the uh, law was read, that is, The Bible was read and what God required of the people, and the people realized that, you know, they were very far from where they ought to be in God, and many of them were despairing and grieving, yet their grief was a manifestation of a desire they had to find God. So Nehemiah says to the people, and this is my point, he says, don't be grieved. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's the joy again, right? I'm talking about finding joy in the midst of adversity. So James, when he starts this, is just before the verses that I'm dealing with this morning. Just before that, he says, we're to count it all joy when we face trials. So James hits upon the same secret that the Apostle Paul and David and Nehemiah in the various verses that I've read out, they all found the same thing, and that is this. Joy depends not on the changing circumstances of life, Joy depends on the one who does not change. He is the rock on which we can build our lives. And this unchangeable faithfulness of God is what James draws us to next. This is verse 13 and 14. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, starting with Adam, human nature has always sought the cause of its own failure in somebody else. She made me do it. He made me do it. The devil made me do it. Whatever. And when we start the blame game, ultimately, we just blame God because we're not prepared to take the responsibility for our own actions. But James says, no, none of this comes from God. See, uh, I've never understood uh, the philosophical approach that states that things are getting better and better and better. Uh, And this was a very prevalent philosophy in the 19th century, and it has still lingered on in the 20th and even into the 21st century. Uh, And a lot of it, I, I, I daren't go into it because I only have so many minutes before the buzzer goes and a hole disappears about underneath where I'll disappear down into the first floor of this building, uh, never be seen again. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, but it started with a, a, a whole philosophical revolution about 200 years ago. Uh, the 
Darwin was part of it, uh, and uh, various uh, political views and philosophical views, and without getting into arguments about evolution or all that type of thing, the foundation of it was the idea that history is developing more and more and more toward a positive purpose. Things are only going to get better and better. Human beings are going to get nicer and nicer, and it's all going to end in some kind of utopia. And Karl Marx was an expression of the same thing. German philosopher called Hegel. There was all sorts of people that advocated this. Um, But after a hundred years of terrible war and suffering and... Uh, all the things that we see even to this day in the media, the great tragedy for which we have flags flying half-mast in the city of Toronto, uh, demonstrates to us that things are not getting better and better. The human nature is not improving. You can't educate people into being good. You can't whip them into shape into being good. That's just never going to happen. You can't give them more and more money and then... Uh, they'll just be wonderful people. And we've tried all these things, but none of it works. Human nature is fundamentally flawed. And the Bible gives an explanation for that. We rejected God's purpose for our life. And so, uh, don't blame God. And sin is like nuclear fallout. We lived, when we lived in Owen Sound, we lived, you know, 45 minutes away from uh, the Bruce, uh, the uh, p- nuclear power station, the largest nuclear power station in the world. And uh, if somebody pressed the wrong button there, everybody, the rest of us, would be go-, go up in smoke. We'd all be affected, the good, the bad, and the ugly. People who are wonderful people, people who are terrible people, we'd all be affected by it. And that's what sin is like. We're all affected by it. We can be wonderful Christian people, We can live our life in obedience to God. We can still get cancer. Uh, There can be a person who is an outright jerk, who rips people off, treats people badly, and he seems to get rich and wealthy and never be troubled by anything. Uh, You know, you, you, you can't just figure life out. But sooner or later, things will catch up to him. But uh, we're affected, all of us, by the sinfulness and fallenness of the world in which we live, right? And uh, I just don't get it that people still try to project that if we could only educate people or if we could only raise the standard of living or do this or that or the next thing. I mean, when I first went to India, I came back depressed because all I heard in Canada after seeing some awful poverty in India, all I found was people complaining about their paycheck. And they only had one car instead of two cars. And I think, ah, you know, having a lot of money and a lot of education has done nothing for us. The people were happier in India. Anyway. I just said that because I felt like saying it. (laughs) I'm hoping to go back soon. Now. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So, enticed means to take the bait. It's a fishing term. Of course, James was a fisherman. Our selfishness, our sin, you want to use that theological word, it manages to corrupt everything it touches. Even Paul said in the Bible, even when I want to do good, I wind up doing evil. I can never quite get it right. 
And so God doesn't tempt us to try to lure us into, you know, acting wrongly. But we're, God tests us. The problem is the Greek doesn't, has only one word for being tested and for testing and tempting. And so he uses it here as kind of a play on words to say God tests us. He tests us to see what is in our heart. He allows adversity. He doesn't send adverse circumstances because God is the author of every good and perfect thing. The junk that comes at us in life is our fault. It's not God's fault. God created a perfect world, but he created us with the ability to make a right or wrong response. Now, you can't blame God for that because he created us as human beings. If we weren't created with the possibility of rejecting God and doing evil, then we wouldn't be people. We'd just be machines or robots, right? So God created us that way. Why did he create us that way? Because he wants men and women who will make a response of love and relationship back to him. That's the kind of universe that God has created. That's why as Christians we believe in the Trinity, because God models fellowship and relationship even within himself. And don't ask me to explain that. might take me another 35 minutes in a different message, (laughs) or even a little bit longer. Okay. Um, And so God wants that, but we we did reject him, and our wrong response to the testing of God that comes through difficult circumstances is called temptation. Desire, when it it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, verse 15. So, this is uh, not, when he uses the word desire, it's not any kind of human desire, as if all desire were evil, but he's referring to desire to do what is wrong at the expense of what is right. So, sexual desire is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but when it's used in the wrong way, it damages ourselves and everybody else around us. When it's allowed to develop, sin becomes very hard to resist. The time to arrest sin is before it's got to that point. If you have a diagnosis of cancer, you don't want to sit around waiting for five years before you go to a doctor to get it treated. Then it's too late. So the time to arrest sin is before it's got to that point. But we can't do it through our own strength, but only through the power of the Spirit. And that comes back to my point that grace is a power. It's a divine energy. It's the power of God that enables you to change. God set us free through the work of Jesus Christ and the cross from the judgment of eternal condemnation. He has given you... If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, a home in heaven and life forever. And not only that, He's given you His Spirit. He's breathed life into you. But now you've got the rest of your life to lead. And so our life in Christ, if we're going to be able to respond to the challenges that life faces successfully, we need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The law of the spirit of life, the Bible says, has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a bold statement that the gift of the spirit of God has set each of us free from this authority and control of sin and the devil and any negative circumstances that can come against you. Before you came to Christ, you were in a battle you couldn't win. Now we're still in a battle. But the tide of war is turned. Theologians explain it 
just looking at my watch here to reassure you. The, <laughs> yeah, the buzzer is there. Uh, theologians put it this way. This is the battle that we're in. Uh, they compare it to uh, the Second World War in June 1944. The Allies landed in Normandy, and uh, that was a decisive event we call D-Day. It was another 10 or so months after that that the war ended, which we call V-Day. And uh, during that time, there were many battles fought. There were thousands of lives lost. But from D-Day on, the outcome of that war was decided. It was done. And so Calvary, the cross, that's our D-Day. We live in between D-Day and V-Day. V-Day is when either we meet the Lord face to face or when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Then we declare total victory. In the middle, we're still fighting, but the outcome is assured. I've looked at the end of the book, and I find out that we win. So, God has given us the power to fight back and to turn the lemons of life into lemonade. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is, these are the last verses. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation, of His creatures. So, do not be deceived. That takes us right back to the first story of the Bible in the beginning of Genesis where we were deceived, it was believing a lie about God that led to the downfall of humanity. No. Did God say that? No. Well, that's ridiculous. God isn't right. Let me give you another alternative. Uh, and let me tell you, I believe in the supernatural power of evil just as much as I believe in the supernatural power of good. Um, modern philosophy has tried to launder both God and the devil out of life. And that's why people go to all these superhero films and why they watch The Lord of the Rings and all these things because they, they, God created us with a knowledge of the supernatural power of good and of evil. And when modern philosophy, teaching, and education has laundered that out, it, that, that knowledge is still inherently there and we look for it in various other places. That's my um, wisdom on the latest superhero film that I understand is coming out. That just makes me relevant, okay? So, it's all right. <laughs> now, believing a lie was what led to the downfall of humanity. But we have the choice every day not to be deceived. So many people live their lives on the basis of lies, believing lies. And sometimes they prefer to believe lies. Once we give in to the lie, sin will take over. And deception is always about the character and the Word of God. Satan poses the question, what did God say? And then he makes what God said sound unreasonable. And it happens all the time today. Satan comes in various forms. He is happiest, as C.S. Lewis said, when he's unrecognized. And so he uses a teaching that, say, that the devil doesn't even exist. Satan's quite happy about that because then he just uses all kind of other means to convey his lies. And we believe lies about God. and We believe lies about the Bible. And then uh, we're in trouble. And we place God even 
blame on God for circumstances that we find difficult when we're in trouble, when we're in adversity, when we're in suffering and challenge. This is when the rubber hits the road, isn't it? And this is when either we dig ourselves deeper into God and we find God and our life is changed for the better or things go south because we're looking for happiness in the wrong place and we'll try to find happiness in the wrong place, but we'll never find it. Our hope is in the fact that God is good. That's the hope that we have. We will face trouble in this world, trouble we brought in ourselves by opening the door to it. Our deliverance comes through believing the truth. And possessing the truth leads to doing the truth, because truth in the Bible is not intellectual, or it's more than intellectual, it is experiential. To know is the word in Hebrew, yada is the word in Hebrew that's used for sexual intimacy, and it's also the word used for knowing God. There, that brings it right back to what I said at the beginning about relationship. That everything in our life is about relationship. Christianity is not a religion, a set of rules that you follow. It's a relationship. At its heart, it is knowing God. That's what it is. And knowing God isn't just knowing facts about God. You can know correct facts about God without even knowing God. But God's desire is that you would know Him personally. We talked to a lady. A lady came for counseling in the United States a couple of months ago when we were there. And, uh, and she said, I, she said I, my question is about eternal security. That means, can I, can I know for sure that I'm saved and I'll never lose my salvation? And God spoke to me and I said, let me ask you a question. What was your relationship like with your father? And she burst into tears and began to sob right there in the restaurant we were talking. And I knew the problem was rooted in relationship. And, and, and it all came out. She had a terribly abusive father. It was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And so uh, I said, well, you, you'll never have security in your relationship with God because your earthly father modeled it in a terrible way and you look at God through the lens of your earthly father, right? And that's, um, you know, that's uh, one of my counseling techniques. And it's true. And uh, it works. And so we're able to talk to her and to put her in the right path and, and get some tools in her hands, uh, which have, have really been helping her. So, but she found that there was a block. To her. She knew about God. That's what I'm trying to say. This lady sat in church. She had all her doctrine right. She knew about God, but somehow it wasn't hitting home where things were really tough in her life because there was an area where she didn't know God. She didn't know God as Father because her own earthly father had been such a whatever, fill in the blanks, that it ruined her ability to know God. Well, I'm telling you, by the power of the Spirit, you can know God this morning. It won't solve all your problems like waving a wand and you walk out onto the street here and all your problems, but it'll put you on the right path, on the path to freedom. God's desire is that not only should we know the truth, but you can live in the truth and may be made free by the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. God is a God of restoration. And the amazing miracle of grace is that the light of God can shine in your life and in my life, and then we become, as God works by His grace in our lives, a wonderful 
reflection, like a mirror, if you want to put it that way, reflecting the goodness of who Jesus is and who God the Father is into the fallen world around us and bringing people hope. John Newton said, we, may, we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. And so here in this passage, passage, James has tried to teach us our, both our utter fallenness and God's incredible grace. These are my last words. I'm landing the plane. God's goodness shines forth the greatest when it is manifest in the fragile containers of our humanity. Elsewhere, Paul says, we're carrying supernatural power in clay pots. God's strength is only ever made perfect in one place, and that's your weakness and mine. Not made perfect in our strength. God's strength is never made manifest except in my weakness. But by the power of the Spirit, I can and you can rise to our destiny to be sons and daughters of the living God, to be the bearers of His image in this world, in this fallen world, to bring hope to it, to bring the hope of restoration, because God is a God of restoration. In the midst of the pain and the sin and the despair that we live in, in the world that we live in, there's hope. And not only hope, but redemption. And not only redemption, but freedom. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him.